Hey everybody, welcome to the Blind Ambition with Jack Kelly. It's Rick here, and we have Christine Spang. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Christine. Hey, Rick and Jack. It's uh, super great to be here. Uh, Christine Spang is the co-founder and CTO of Nihilus, where she leads technical support and strategy and the development and delivery of products and experiences for software developers and technical teams. Uh, before founding Nihilus, she was a principal developer at K-Splice and Oracle, focused on backend systems. And for those that don't know, Nihilus is a communication platform as a service that empowers businesses to unlock the true power of their communications data. It really helps developers by automating manual, repetitive uh, tasks with little to no code involved at all. And I think that second part is particularly interesting. You know, right now we're seeing a lot of uh, companies really focus on how do we kind of start this no-code movement. So I wanted to dig in there, like what gave you the inspiration to to found or start Nihilus? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, It's been a long time at this point. It's been uh, over over nine years since I started the company. So I feel like every time I, I go tell the story, it's digging deeper into the archives. <laughs> nice. Um, but it kind of goes back to when I um, when I was in college. Um, so I went to MIT, uh, studied software engineering, uh, computer science there, and um, I got pretty involved with uh, essentially like the computer club uh, when I was there. And then um, I ended up uh, joining a startup that was founded by some folks that um, that I knew from the computer club at MIT, and. That was really like my introduction to uh, entrepreneurship. I kind of came into uh, the startup world from from tech, really. And, you know, back in those days, a decade ago, it wasn't as obvious as it is today that like a startup is a great place to go and be an engineer. I think the kind of big firms were more of the destination uh, at that point in time. And so you know, I always knew that I wanted to be an engineer, but I, I didn't know until I sort of stumbled into it that uh, entrepreneurship was a, a cool way to to build things and bring them into the world. Um, so kind of got my intro through that. Um, but in terms of, you know, just getting Nihilus off the ground and starting the company, um, I, I kind of had like a, a bit of a whirlwind startup experience at the previous company. Uh, I was there for three years. And in that time, uh, you know, it was bootstrapped, we grew the product, uh, the founders ended up selling it to Oracle. And I went through a whole acquisition process and integration. And so um, <clears throat> there was essentially like a transition point where I kind of knew that, you know, I wasn't going to stay at the acquiring company long term, and it was a good chance for me to think about what I really wanted to do next. And I essentially had a, a friend from MIT who had started out same year as me, had gone off into the startup world, done some things, came back. And so while I was working at Case Bias, that previous startup, we we were chatting a lot as he was kind of finishing up his degree. And... Um, you have to do a thesis project to actually graduate from MIT and sort of build something. And so uh, he was trying to build uh, essentially like a customized email experience, like a, like a, like a mail client that had certain features and just, you know, catching up with him every week over yoga and tea in the morning. Um, just, 
I, I got to see firsthand how difficult it was to actually build something that connects to a mailbox. Like, and he was trying to kind of build this contextual metadata experience where like MIT is as, as a student experience, like all the students there at least a decade ago, um, did a ton of stuff over email. It's like how you talk to your professors. There's like hundreds of, of sort of email lists and groups for different things. And um, so, you know, it, it made sense to kind of want to build a tool to enhance that. And it was really difficult. Um, just sort of like the oldness of the protocols, uh, the complexity that came from trying to connect to something that's essentially like a, a global distributed infrastructure. There's all these different providers, um, all these different edge cases that have kind of come about because there's a lot of different implementations. There's like open standards, but you know, there's all these different major companies that have implemented those standards. And just the functionality has really been kind of um, adapted over time because computers have changed a lot in you know the 50 plus years that email's been around so um i saw that it took a lot of time uh, to do things that seemed like they ought to be really basic and um that's really the spark of the idea that led to founding nihilus it was like um people aren't building things that connect to all the valuable data that's in email because the barrier to entry is too high it's just a lot of work to access even the basics of that data, just displaying a message. Um, and that was true, you know, a decade ago and um, still true today. You know, the, the challenges have evolved, but that's kind of where the, the company started with. And uh, there are kind of a lot of twists and turns in how um, we ended up growing and building the company over time. Um, kind of in the early days, we actually started out you know, the sort of email APIs that are core part of the product today were, were supposed to be a stepping stone to actually sort of building this, this email app. And long story short, um, that didn't end up working out well as a business. It was really hard to monetize, had high churn, things like that. And we ended up pivoting back to really focus on the infrastructure, which was the first thing that we had thought about and built because we built these APIs as sort of a way to abstract away this like really complicated thing that was hard to work with so that we could build this app um, that ultimately didn't end up being uh, the right direction to build a company from. You talk about this often with uh, previous guests, right? In, in Silicon Valley, we almost have this like worship of failure or at least if not a worship, just in general acceptance. Uh, would you mind walking us through that kind of first pivot point at Nihilus? Um, you know, how did you deal with kind of calling it a day, like recognizing that uh, maybe failure is too strong of a word, but but that moment and and what did you learn from it? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, I would say that we we probably spent about two and a half years actually building out that email app. Um, started out with the code name uh, N1, sort of our sort of internal name that we we use for the app, and we actually launched kind of the beta using that code name, and then uh, eventually we changed the name to Nihilus Mail, and uh, it was built using the Electron framework, which was really cool back in the day, kind of a JavaScript uh, desktop application framework. Um, 
And it was really interesting in that, like, we had to build just a ton of uh, different things in order to even launch that app because and we essentially had sort of this backend infrastructure and a team that was working on building and maintaining and scaling that and sort of adding the connectors to the different email providers. And then like a whole other set of people that was sort of, you know, architecting a, a desktop app. And so it was a, a really heavy lift for a, a company that was, you know, like 15 or 20 people uh, at the time. Um, and so we kind of did this like dual prong strategy, which, uh, I think really, if I look back at it now, I, I would say that like it was doing too much for a company of that size. Um, we, you know, built the, the backend platform and infrastructure, and we actually started uh, selling that platform uh, to other developers that wanted to, to build things that connected to email. Um, so there was kind of a a steady, steady stream of folks that we were getting on that. And we had, you know, a support person and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, we also had the app team that was, you know, building that, that app. And, um, you know, essentially like we, we did launch the app and um, got a ton of interest in it. We had to put up a, uh, like a wait list because there were way too many people uh, kind of trying to get on the system at once. And I was really exciting. Um, I think that like, I, because it was such a fun thing to be building and, and so relevant to like, just your day-to-day, -day. Um, it was kind of hard to get away from uh, just the fact that it was not working as a business. So it probably took us like a quarter or two to, to get to the point where, you know, we really just decided that we had to pull the plug um, because uh, one, uh, we dug into the metrics sort of behind the business and uh, the churn on the app was very high um, for a number of different reasons. Um, we tried doing a subscription model for that app. Um, and people in the email client world, like all of the major email apps out there or email clients uh, that most people use are subsidized by all of the major tech providers out there. So, you know, if you're using Gmail, like Google doesn't make money off of using G of people using Gmail and they store a ton of data because of it, but they're able to, you know, train lots of different uh, algorithms within Google and ultimately, uh, you know, it's a side business, them selling ads. So same with Microsoft, different story, but, you know, Outlook in itself, like as a single piece of software is not sold individually. Um, so everybody out there um, who's trying to make money off an email app is kind of up against this bar for free, which is a uh, really high bar for kind of the base level of feature set, uh, stability and reliability, and then uh, even price. So um, just a lot of headwinds to, to work against and um, difficult to, to grow and scale. And so um, we basically, um, it was just like costing us more uh, in infrastructure to serve this than uh, was really a healthy place for the business. So that's why we had to, to make a hard call. And um, ultimately what we ended up doing was um, shutting down our internal development. We spun off the app as like a fully open source project. Um, the 
main architect of the app ended up leaving the company and um, taking over the sort of maintenance and development of it with uh, his consulting shop. Um, and uh, all this happened sort of in tandem with a uh, big leadership change uh, at Nihilus. Um, so the person I originally started the company with, with the email app was sort of, you know, his baby and, uh, you know, his passion. And so uh, as a part of this, uh, we also ended up going through uh, a leadership transition where uh, he stepped away from the company and um, the person who we had first hired to sort of build the like business side of the company um, did all of our first sales, closed our first million dollars in ARR uh, on his own, you know, figured out how to like sell and market to developers, uh, all that kind of zero to one stuff on the business. Um, he ended up stepping into the CEO role and kind of we, we ended up launching what I think of as like Nihilus V2, um, where um, we really just refocused on what was working, which was the infrastructure and the API uh, business. Um, the reason that we knew it was working was because we had been selling it all along. We had a bunch of cohort data um, that we could analyze and sort of see that the foundational metrics for building and scaling a, like a real business were actually there, unlike with the app where they weren't. Um, we had super low churn uh, with the infrastructure product, um, less than 1% uh, in terms of uh, revenue or logos uh, monthly churn, which is really, really good. Uh, so super sticky product, people essentially build apps and integrations that used uh, the APIs and never switch off us or unless you know they shut down the product or the company went out of business, uh, which Really it's basically perfect. basically never it's like all inorganic turn um which is a good thing um and then we also you know measured the net dollar retention or you, know, you could call it account expansion things like that where uh accounts that we would uh close one year if 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 you know you look at that account again in another year um we were seeing about 250 percent growth uh in those accounts just through sort of usage expansion um best in class kind of metric. And so we essentially took all of those metrics and turned it into a new deck and went out and raised it like a new round of funding with the like, here's Nihilus, the infrastructure company that is building APIs to connect to communications data. Um, so bit of a winding story, but what I always come back to is that, you know, there's so many companies out there that like the, the really short version journey, um, you know, is kind of omitting a lot of the ups and downs. And for most companies, it's not like a straight journey of up and to the right, like figured everything out. Um, that portion of a company's history where you're just trying to find product market fit and sort of see what sticks and what people want can, can be a, a lot of varying different amounts of time. So I really look at kind of the first stage of the company where it was, uh, you know, essentially like 2013 to 2017 is like, you know, we were trying to figure out what was the product that we could scale and grow. And we had uh, one big miss on that. And, and luckily we had, um, you know, not another thing that was working really well that, you know, I think if, if we had sort of dug into it earlier, um, maybe we could have uh, focused on that uh, with a little bit less, 
drama. That's really great that you could do that. You know, I, I, I think most people, they hear, they think of a Mark Zuckerberg that pretty much right out of the gate was successful. And to most people, they feel, oh, that's what happens, but they don't realize that your story, it seems, you know, from the podcast we've done and, and people I write about at Forbes, similar story to yours. You start out with an idea and then you love it, but then you realize, hmm, we're not making any money. Let's figure out what we can do next. And you iterate and you try to do what's next and then keep moving till you find, hey, what, what does our, you know, clients want? What's going to make them happy? And then you kind of go to that direction. And sometimes it takes a long time and a lot of pain. But, but it's, you know, you never see that behind the scenes. You always, always, and this was so frustrating because like in the mass media, you only hear the success stories. Oh my gosh, they did this. Look how much money they raised, what have you. But you don't hear all the tears, all the, all the you know, all the arguing, all the fighting, all, all the agita that took place behind the scenes to make this happen. Yeah, for sure. I mean, things get just so super simplified and boiled yeah. down into overnight success stories that, and it kind of loses a lot of the, the grit and the grind of you know what it actually takes to to find something that that works and that that people want and kind of the iterations of you know even once you do have that product market fit there's um you know spurts of growth and then there's plateaus and inflection points where you know whatever playbook you came up with that got you through the last phase doesn't quite work anymore and um you got to get creative and figure out how to get through it and i think um you know that's just sort of a entrepreneurial thing that like you know you gotta gotta want and get used to because it's kind of the fun part where you know you don't know if something's gonna gonna work uh work or not and it's your job to to be the person that figures that out it takes a strong stomach to do that, whether it's an entrepreneur or even for people on blind on their careers to take those chances. Like sometimes, okay, I'm going to move from, you know, Microsoft to Apple, Apple to Amazon. And it's scary because you're kind of moving. You don't know. You're hoping it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't. And then yeah. different kinds of people. Some people make that move and it doesn't work and they just right. press fall in and they're upset and, and they can't get past it and they're angry. Yep. And it's just, and it just, you know, a downward cycle. Others say, all right. Did it work? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let me brush well, myself off and just, I'll kind of move on and keep trying. Right. Or even like role switches, you know, going from, yeah. you know, software engineering to trying out product management or uh, solutions engineering, things like that, uh, going to, to a management role. Um, I, you know, I think it's really useful to have this mindset of like, you know, especially if you have like a, a sort of like a ladder like career, you know can kind of almost feel like you know you have to be sort of having a bigger role and accomplishing more um uh more responsibility things like that but you know being able to have that beginner's mind of like you know dust yourself off if something doesn't work out maybe you learn something um try again or maybe maybe that direction just wasn't for you yeah. um I'm glad you said that because so often, because I'm an executive recruiter and, and doing it for 25 years, I started out in kindergarten. I'm not that old. So, so, so what happens is this, is that you feel old school mentality. Hey, I got to manage a person. Then I got to manage two people. I got to manage 10 people. That's how I'm going to be important. And that's how I'm going to do something. But a lot of times you're really good at what you do. 
but you're a really crappy manager because the skills that got you, let's say you're, you're a salesperson, a marketing person, you're great at marketing, great at sales, but you're not great at managing people. And so then you rise to your level of incompetence and it's a big mess because you felt that's what I'm supposed to do. A lot of times, mm -hmm. no, put your ego aside just so you, so you can't tell your family and friends, oh, I managed 30 people, 50 people, big deal. But if you're not good at it and, and, and people underneath you are miserable, well, maybe go back and be, you know, a solo contributor, but really be awesome at that and be super successful at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been super cool to watch even some of those journeys like within Nihilus. Um, one of the coolest parts uh, about uh, getting to the scaling stage of a startup is that, you know, it does open up a lot of, you know, different career opportunities for people within the company that you know, aren't necessarily existing when you're you know, still figuring out the basics of, of what the products are going to be. I think that early stage, it's really fun because you can get a group of builders together and really focus on the building. Um, but once you're kind of in the scale up stage, there's, you know, I, the organization starts to specialize a, a bit. Um, and so, you know, we have uh, folks like from engineering who've moved into solutions engineering and, uh, gone on to be super successful. And then, you know, one of them later went back to an engineering job at, at another company. So, you know, career is a jungle gym, not, not a ladder. Um, we also had an engineer who was passionate about uh, security, bootstrap our internal security team and um, hire, hire a bunch of, you know, dedicated security engineers. And then uh, ultimately decide that he missed the building part and that you know, running a security team has, you know, almost nothing, you know, you know, there's not a lot of hands-on work that comes with managing um, the security side of things. It's, it's like a, especially for, for a growing org, you know, you're working a lot with sales about, uh, you know, answering questions about security, working with enterprise clients to kind of build confidence, um, uh, putting together plans for like compliance, um, implementing programs for security awareness and there's just so many different parts of it that aren't really like you know product engineering that wasn't necessarily obvious up front but it's super cool that you know he got to learn the leadership skills in that role and then uh, at the end of the day like we're happy to put him into a management role in engineering and uh, go build product again. Now would you sometimes see the you know the ability in people that maybe they don't realize themselves and turn to rick and say hey rick i know you're a great you know pr communications person but i think you could be fantastic doing x and try to motivate them but then on the other side somebody's in a role and you're like this person's brilliant and amazing but i gotta kind of say i we gotta move you somewhere else <laughs> do you have those tough conversations <laughs> so positive conversations with rick but maybe not so positive with others do you do, you do that <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, like, it's just a part of uh, management in general is having the tough conversations when something isn't working out with someone for whatever reason. And like, I don't think you can consider yourself to be a, a good manager if, if, you know, you're not able to, to have those kinds of conversations. And it is tough. But ultimately, I think that like, the effectiveness of a lot of that stuff, it really comes from like building relationships and trust. Um, cause like no one's going to listen to you if you make a suggestion of like, 
you know, hey, Judy, I've really noticed that, you know, you're super detail-oriented and passionate about security. Like, we have this opportunity where, you know, we don't have anyone who's really dedicated to this role and uh, we need it. Like, is that something that would be interesting to you? Um, that kind of stuff, it doesn't really land um, if you don't have a, a good rapport with that yeah. person. So um, you got to start from getting to know someone on a personal level, uh, understanding their career goals, like seeing kind of what stage they're in. Like, are they a more junior person want to explore? Like, do they have a clear picture of where they want to be in the future? Um, are they a sort of a natural uh, generalist who sells at the zero to one phase? And um, we had a great kind of startup, startup person who, um, uh, he, he essentially had like a, another company of his own before joining Nihilus. And then um, he grew two separate functions within Nihilus during his time here, where, you know, he started out as the first individual contributor on the ground for that function. Uh, first, it was essentially our like support engineering team, um, getting in front of customers, helping them solve their problems, um, did it hands-on, then built out the whole team and then hired in a leader uh, to go do something else. Um, uh, so he, he eventually moved on to, to start our product team. Um, and that's just super cool, that, that kind of skill set of just like, you know, I may not be the right person to scale from 10 to 100, but I can do the zero to 10 over and over again. Um, that's a really amazing thing to find that someone is, is really good at and kind of deploy them. Or, or even kind of enable and allow that passion and connect it to the needs of the organization. I don't want to take too much credit. <laughs> no, I, I like what you said about allowing because, you know, besides kind of raising your hand and volunteering for those zero to 10 moments, as you called it, to kind of find a different discipline within engineering or within your role, um, are, are there other ways that engineers or technologists typically find kind of their specialty, right? Like, how did you become a back-end engineer as opposed to, you know, working on the front end as in, you know, let's say it's 2022 right now. Why why aren't you doing Web3 or, or cryptocurrency or blockchain engineering, right? Totally. Um, I mean, I think what it comes down to is like, especially if you're early career, you just got to try a lot of different things and see, you know, both what you have an aptitude for and also like what, what you find most interesting. Um, because I think skill really derives from like passion and interest, like anything someone starts for their first time, they're, they're not going to be good at it right away. And, you know, there are sort of innate talents that help people be good at things. Um, but often like, like your interest is is somewhat built on you know those innate talents so i don't think you have to like you know necessarily focus on trying to figure out what you're good at like things that you're good at are fun so like follow the fun and you also spend more time on something if it's fun and engaging so um you can't really get away from like putting in the work and putting in the hours to get good at something. So 
uh, if it's if it's fun uh, to build the skills, you you'll you'll build the skills. Yeah, I, th I think that's great career advice, whether it's in business or just navigating a career. Because so many people I see, they'll maybe become an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever because it's, you get social status, it makes your parents happy, you impress your family, they could brag about you, but you hate it. And then if you hate it, <laughs> it's really hard to succeed and do well if you just dread it and you just did it because it pays well and you get some bragging rights and social clout. But the people who like love what they do, then it's like they're unstoppable because to them, yeah, you're not gonna love it every single day, everything you do, but more, maybe 60% of the time, 70% of the time you like it. So then you don't mind working. And you see that in every kind of company. You see the people who have that, like they don't mind putting it out because they enjoy it. It's a game, it's fun. I think of people like Warren Buffett, who's like, like what, 120 years old. And he's still going because he loves the action. He loves the game. He loves doing it. And that's, I think that's so important. Like, I don't know, Rick, if they really, people talk about that on blind enough where it's, it's, it's sometimes they seem it's all about the total compensation and not really say, wait, do I really like what I'm doing? And maybe if I love what I'm doing, I could actually earn way, way more down the road because I'm going to be that person everyone wants to turn to and get on their team because they're just so jazzed about it. They bring in a great personality. They, they bring in the enthusiasm. You know, they bring in the drive. And then who doesn't want to be surrounded by somebody like that? Because then you, you get energized and you want to do a better job. Does that, does that make sense? Is that? Yeah, for sure. It makes me think of, uh, we have uh, an engineer on our team who started in engineering and ended up moving uh, into the sales org when we were just kind of getting our solutions engineering function off the ground. Um, and it, his motivation for that was was really related to, he wanted like a, a more social environment. He's kind of uh, one of the rare breed of extra, extroverted engineers. And, um, uh, you know, he's a, a great engineer who really excelled at uh, prototyping and also really wanted to be customer facing and to, 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 you know, get the face time with people who are actually trying to build things with the product. And so um, I see just like a huge amount of opportunity for like a lot of these sort of, you know, not pure software engineering roles, but like take that tech background and, um, use it to to build you know other things that that are related that make use of that skill uh this person also uh sort of long-term uh, oriented was uh, you know thinking about starting his own company and he's like well if i start my own company i gotta i gotta do sales so this is a great way to learn how sales is done and and pick up that skill um so just another example of kind of navigating the the jungle gym and trying out new things and seeing what happens do you think that it's easier to work at an engineering culture or a company culture that's a jungle gym at a startup or a smaller company or, or can you in your experience find those opportunities at kind of these more established or larger companies that's a great question. I've only worked for one larger company, so I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, depending on sort of what I've heard from other folks uh, in the industry. Um, I think that like, if you're super sort of self-motivated, like a startup 
especially, I mean, the startup has to be growing for this to work really because growth creates uh, new opportunities. Um, and uh, like, I would say that there's less friction just to starting, starting a different kind of role at a startup because there's usually less process around making the change. And um, there's usually more, more work to go around than people, <laughs> um, which makes people really willing to take a bet on someone who's not necessarily done it before, especially if there's uh, a relationship there and sort of a history of, of getting things done. And, you know, the way I look at it, like if someone's a high performer in one role and really kind of shows impact to the organization and they say that they're interested in this other thing and think they can make a big impact there, like I, I'm, I'm already predisposed towards saying yes, because um, if I have that, that, you know, trust and sort of experience with that person already, like they already know the company versus, you know, if you're bringing in someone from the outside, like it's actually a more risky thing, uh, especially in a small company, because um, there's just a lot more unknowns. Interesting. So, I mean, that, I, I like that, that. That's good advice that you say, right? Because if you someone is interviewing, these are the types of questions that they could perhaps ask to try to understand, oh, you know, what, what's the long term besides just optimizing for compensation or optimizing for a job level or right. remote work or something, just a one-off? Like, for example, you know, with security, if, if I decide to go out and hire someone uh, to do security at my company, I'm going to hire someone who's done it before. Right. But if you haven't done it before you, you need to find someone who's willing to take a bet on someone who hasn't done it before. And I think one of the easiest ways to do that is to join a, a startup that's growing and, and be useful and prove that you get things done. I, I like this thread on hiring that you mentioned. You know, you've been a fixture in tech communities like Lesbians Who Tech, Dev Color, Women Who Code. I mean, from your vantage point there, do you believe the tech industry is making progress in, in, in hiring and welcoming more females and non-males to the industry? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think by the numbers, if you look at over the past two decades, you know, we've sort of gone back and forth a little bit. Um, I think we've made progress in a few ways. One is that like, you know, I was having this conversation with uh, an older woman from the industry. Um, and, you know, 30 years ago, like, it was accepted to be sort of like overtly sexist in the workplace and, uh, you know, do things like just, you know, say sort of microaggression y type things about like, you know, someone who was female being interested in engineering or, um, you know, being in that kind of role and um, just be like openly uh, against it or questioning it. And I think we're past the point where it's like okay to do that. Like, you know, if you join a company today, like, most companies I would say like have if they have a functioning HR department that HR department will like take complaints of this this type you know seriously um and that that is progress um I see the end state as being 
as being not, you know, sort of equal numbers of, you know, all genders or races and stuff like that uh, within the tech industry. Um, because there's so many factors that kind of go into that. I think really what we need to be striving for is that, you know, if you uh, are interested and capable of doing some sort of job, you know, the industry itself shouldn't put up obstacles because of, you know, who someone is uh, for them being successful in that role. And um, I think the higher you go, it's still the case that like, you know, it's harder to su succeed as, uh, as a woman, for example. And, you know, you do have to, to be better than the competition. I don't think that's gone away. And I think that like, you know, we wouldn't be still hearing stories uh, pretty much every year about, um, you know, things that shouldn't be happening, whether that's uh, harassment or, um, you know, lack of compensation parity, things like that. Like, there's there's still a way to go, but um, I, I don't think we should uh, be too depressed about having made no progress because I don't think that's the case I think we have made meaningful progress and um I personally have like never I I don't want to on any sort of uh I personally feel like I, I don't have a lot of obstacles that are based off of like who I am you know it's more about um you know what I'm able to bring to the table and um uh kind of a a meritocratic uh approach to to getting things done and um, I just want to see more of that elsewhere I want, I want people to have the opportunities and the support that I've had I, I like that because I, I think many people don't know this but computer programming was historically a female dominated industry you know like Grace yeah. Hopper, a woman invented the first computer yeah. language compiler. So, right? like, like if you just kind of look at it by the numbers throughout the right. years well you might you might feel like we went backwards in time, but I think it's right. more subtle than that. <laughs> I, I mean, how, how did we go from, right? Like Grace Hopper programmed the first computers, right? And, and this industry was so associated with females. And, and now it's it's almost the opposite, right? Where it's, it, it's gone to the other side and you just think of like tech bros, right? Or it, it's just so male dominated engineering teams at nearly every company like mm -hmm. do, you, do you have any insights on, on on perhaps how that shift might have happened or is, is it kind of uh something that's going on at where, where people are like learning to program and code or mm -hmm. I don't have all the answers to stuff like that <laughs> what I what I can say is that the tech industry is getting a lot bigger so mm. I think you know one thing we are seeing is that there's a lot more variation from you know, company to company. And uh, even um, I would say from like country to country, like for example, the US and Canada uh, have more sort of gender parity in uh, their sort of engineering hiring populations than um, a lot of sort of more uh, global uh, countries that you might be hiring or working with. I don't know the reason for that, but um this is kind of why I go back to like there's just like so many factors of like right. sort of how a pool of people ends up the way it is and you know we're essentially talking about like 
like the cultures of like the entire world at the end of the day. And like, I, I'm not an expert in, in that level of, uh, you know, history, psychology, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, you, you try to make a difference where you can. And so we'll do, we do the best that we can and uh, hope we can set a good example for other people too. I, I appreciate that education for, for, for me. I mean, what are steps that you're taking at, at Nihilus to make your, your organization, kind of your team, your company, um, that much a better place to work? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think there's like a lot of different things. Um, I mean, it starts from just kind of the basics, like, you know, treat everyone uh, the same, uh, set set high standards for your people, give them coaching and feedback, um, you know, give them opportunities to advance, give them autonomy. Like it's really important that people can sort of feel ownership over things. Like that's what, what makes people engaged in their work at the end of the day is, you know, having a clear set of goals um, and uh, the ability and resources to um, to work towards those goals um, and achieve and do things. Um, you know, we do things like uh, we have like an education stipend that people can use. Um, you can actually uh, sort of 50-50 split it between um, sort of professional education and development and, you know, anything personal. Um, for example, um, one of my employees is really into uh, reptiles and he's part of their education stipends <laughs> to purchase some uh, educational course about, I can't remember the, what the right word is for studying reptiles, but it probably ends in, ends in like ology or something. Right. <laughs> so is it like hepatology or something? I might be making that word up. Yeah. <laughs> um. So things like that, plus, you know, like books or courses, online things that are related to your role. Um, uh, training your internal managers. Um, this is also one of the other things that I think is super fun about being in kind of the scaling stage of a company where like when we were 30 people, like you didn't get any training at all when you went into management. You were literally just thrown into the fire and told like, you know, Joe and Mary report to you yeah. now. Good luck. Um, and, uh, you know, we have sort of a whole uh, you know, people organization that, you know, every manager is able to talk to about, you know, the people stuff, which at least in engineering organizations tends to be kind of the, the sword that needs sharpening, like in terms of skills progression, like and this is the way that it should happen, honestly, like, like, just in terms of like human development, if, you know, you're a 21 year old just out of school, like, you should focus on getting really good at the execution of, you know, the building or what, what is, what are kind of the tasks of, um, you know, the job that you're trying to do, which, you know, if you're a software engineer, that's, taking first, you know, well-defined and scoped, uh, tasks for development and uh turning them around getting them done to spec quickly so that's like step one and then you kind of graduate to 
sort of higher levels of uh, ambiguity and ownership uh, and design. And then, uh, you know, I think that like, you need like a certain level of maturity as like a person and just like experience being in the world to really excel at the management side of things because, um, you know, you're, you're working with other people and essentially your job becomes making them successful. And so I think it's very reasonable that, that, you know, people should be focusing on that first because you're not really set up for success if you don't have that foundation of technical skills. And then also just like, if you're, you know, really, really young and fresh out of school, you know, you might not be the right time in your life to kind of really focus on that, you know, spend a few years uh, focusing on the building first. I'm just always curious to see, you know, what's out there, you know, especially, you know, what's going on, what's like, how do you feel things are playing out? You know, we've seen so many layoffs in tech, you have high interest rates, you know, high inflation. Are, are you impacted by it? Or are you worried about that? How, how's that going? Yeah, I mean, like, I think if you're not sort of looking around and, you know, looking at what's happening in the world when you're running a company, like, you know, that's part of your job, right? So, you know, we've been, you know, making sure that we're kind of managing to a runway. We've really uh, pulled back um, on our hiring plans. And um, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Honestly, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. So you kind of got to plan for the worst, hope for the best, have a few scenarios and, you know, keep checking in with the, the state of the world and to make sure that, you know, your internal plans are aligning to whatever's happening. But uh, I always like to say that, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. Like you read stuff on the news all the time. Like there's, there's signal to pull out of there, but there's also just like a ton of speculation and people kind of projecting their own emotional state onto like, you know, whatever they think is going to happen. Like, you know, if you're happen to be like a, really pessimistic person maybe you feel like it's going to be really bad um if you're really optimistic like you know there's all sorts of reasons like people's own uh experience background whatever that you know people can make some predictions so i try to take all all predictions about exactly what will happen with about the future with a, a grain of salt and distill down to you know what are the trends and data and things that are actually happening that are kind of driving these predictions because that's the actual information that you need to to make the best decisions you can about about running business yeah i i, I like that foundational first approach that you have there i think it's a good reminder especially when i, I think folks they, they turn in the news right and you mentioned this at the beginning of the pod um you, you you might look at your peers, you might like go on Hacker News, or you might look at uh, TechCrunch and you're thinking, oh my gosh, these startups are raising hundreds of millions of dollars and I haven't, what am I doing? And, or, oh my gosh, what, what's going on in terms of the state of the economy? Or you might be seeing layoffs. And I think it's always a good step to take back and think, well, if it's in the news, it's it's by definition, it's newsworthy. It's an extraordinary event or it's uh, there's something interesting or unique about it, right? You know, it, it it wouldn't be in the news otherwise. And so I think it's a it's a good thing to do to kind of 
realize like, okay, like what is actually going on or what are actually my, my, my core beliefs or uh, the foundational things that I know to be true and, and kind of making your decisions from there. So, yeah. so thank you for that reminder, Christine. I mean, I would uh, I would counter a little bit that like in the modern world that we're in today, not all things that are necessarily in quote unquote the news are newsworthy. <laughs> kind of depends on what the source is. Like, you know, anybody can write on the internet now. Like, there's social media. Like, there's all sorts of you know memes and viral loops and stuff like that. And sometimes people actually write news stories about like some crazy thing that was on social media that's like actually just stupid or like not that interesting. Like my pet peeve around this is the uh the like LinkedIn quiet quitting trend. <laughs> yeah. I just I'm like, somebody wrote a post about this. Someone thought it sounded good. It sort of got stuck in a viral loop. And then people started writing articles about like the social media articles or something. But like, there's nothing newsworthy like in there. If you like look at the data, like things aren't different now. It's not, it's not like people are less engaged at work than they were three years ago. Like, it's just, it's just like a non-trend trend. So <laughs> You don't have it because you jump on because what happens is you jump on it, then you feel like you have to write about because everyone else is writing about it, so that it becomes it comes a thing. It's it's a weird, it's wild. <laughs> it's it's crazy how these things happen. Yeah. So I just keep in mind that memes are mind viruses, and <laughs> a, a lot can happen. Oh my gosh, I love that. That that's a good reminder to end on. Thanks so much, Christine, for coming on the show. Thank you. That's it for The Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.